so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Here we go. Yeah, I was, I was just putting in the. Uh, I put in one more story actually for Lindsay. Brent, <laughs> we may do it later. Don't do anyway, it. Here we don't go. do it. Yeah. Well, you don't have to read everything that you've written down, Brent. Just on the fly, Mister NPR. Shh. Shh. All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me in the virtual and very snowy studio are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello from another week of my vacation, this time being snowed in with two kids under two. They're blessings. It is a blessing. And, you know, we are vacationing right now in Narnia, all of us together. Also with us on the podcast is Mr. Christmas, Brent Leatherwood. Ho, ho, ho. Who hates snow and cold weather, as we've talked about before. Listen, you can can decorate palm trees. It makes no sense, Brent. It makes no sense. (laughs) I mean, well, okay, just to clarify here. I think snow is great on Christmas Day, maybe Christmas Eve. I would even accept like December 26th. Much beyond that, though, I've got absolutely no use for snow. Well, and neither I'll just should you. I am annoyed by snow, but since I'm already working from home and not going anywhere, I'm doing fine. Uh, I am basically having my best life because I've got several of my friends who are here and we're all just kind of hanging out together. And it's the stuff you wish you could do as a kid. We're getting to do as adults. So it's been really wonderful. And uh, speaking of, I mean, Megan, the podcast ninja is upstairs uh, at my house right now. And she may not speak right this moment, but she definitely is going to, you'll hear from her at some point in the podcast. Right now, she's just giving you a, a virtual wave. Let's get into it. Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC is talking about this week. So first off, we have another helpful explainer from our policy staff that, Josh, uh, you'll want to speak to a little bit since you are uh, filling in the content calendar in my stead while I'm here at home. Uh, But it's an important explainer about how Christians should think about France's separatism bill. So in light of some Islamic terrorism that uh, France has been experiencing, most recently a French middle school teacher who was beheaded by the father of one of his students after discussing the freedom of of expression in his classroom, uh, France is kind of... um, trying to do something about this. But it's a very controversial religious law that evangelical Christians, that Christians or people of any faith, should not feel so comfortable about, even though we are not for these um, extreme terrorism actions. So, Josh, could you tell us a little bit more about this? Sure. And you you did good trying to set that up. This is a situation that I've been following for uh more than a year now, France has been gripped for the last several years with violent extremism. I think what I read is that more than 250 people have been killed as a result of these uh, extremist terrorist uh, acts of terrorism. And so France obviously has a real problem. They know that that, uh, that these violent 
actions are religiously motivated, but instead of trying to come up with a creative, targeted, nuanced way to address religious extremism, instead they're just cracking down on religion across the board. And that's what this, uh, that's what this bill ultimately represents. Now, there were, it's important to note, there were 1,700, I think, amendments offered to this bill. So it looks like it's going to take them a very long time to process it, but that got started this week. And so we'll be following this uh, and doing some advocacy work to try to encourage France to sustain uh, the freedom of religion and the free exercise of religion in that country. Yeah, and it's a 459-page bill, which is, wow, crazy. Toward the end of the article, our policy staff says, Christians should oppose this clear example of government overreach that would trample upon the consciences of millions of French citizens and pray this bill does not pass as introduced. So if you're confused about that or you're wondering, okay, what's going on with this, uh, it is on our website, ERLC.com. It's very helpful for a, um, a bit of a confusing situation happening across the pond. Uh, another article that I wanted to highlight this week, because we're talking about COVID, how it's still an ongoing thing. And Stephen Stollard out of New York has an article titled, Three Ways to Engage Our Neighbors During a Pandemic. And so he just is talking about how they moved to New York to plant a church, how neighboring is already hard and that becomes even harder in a pandemic, which I've felt very guilty for because you're towing this line of protecting yourself from the virus, protecting your family and friends, uh, not wanting to give it to anybody else, not wanting to be one of the ones who has an extreme reaction to it. And yet, as Christians, we're called to love Christ and to to lay down our lives for them. So what can that look like in the midst of a pandemic? So he gives us, as I said earlier, three ways that we can do this. And, and he lists some ways that his family has been doing this in the midst of the pandemic, while also being wise in the process. So, and at the end, he says, maybe just maybe God will use us and use you to draw our neighbors to himself, even in a pandemic. I love that article, Lindsay. And we've highlighted a lot of things that local people are doing in the midst of this pandemic, how churches, how how people are finding new ways to love their neighbor that they never they never probably considered before now. And I've been thinking about it this week. We've talked about um, the weather and um, just how that's been crazy this week all over the place. Um, but just people are outside again. And you're like, oh, neighbors, like just the different ways that the Lord is bringing us out of our homes and bringing our neighbors um, to our sidewalks. Yeah. One example that happened this week, uh, our colleague, Jason Thacker, you know, his wife is going through these uh treatments, uh, cancer treatments, and she was supposed to get to the hospital yesterday and was not able to get there just because they couldn't even get their cars out of their driveway. And so multiple people were scrambling, trying to figure out how to get to the Thacker's home to get Dory to the hospital. And a neighbor, literally a man from down their street who has a large truck with four-wheel drive, uh, his wife sent him down there to take Dory to the hospital and she was able to get there, praise God. And so that's just one example of the kind of good work that can happen even in the midst of a time like this. It is neat to see people step up, and um, I pray, especially as believers, we would let our light shine and step up as we're able in the season of life that we're in uh, to serve our neighbors. And then finally, I wanted to highlight, even though we've got lots of great resources on our site, is a compilation that Julie Masson, which you'll recognize her name from being one of the co-hosts while I was out, and she'll be back, I'm sure, many, we'll have many guest appearances, 
But she um, gave a rundown of common questions about the COVID-19 vaccine, especially some of those questions that were asked and then answered by Dr. Francis Collins when he joined uh, Dr. Moore to talk about the vaccine. So questions like, how do I know this vaccine is going to be safe? Is it going to compromise my pro-life convictions? And I've still been having conversations like this with friends and family members have and have sent them this uh, resource and then other resources as well that we have on our COVID-19 page. So I would encourage you to go there. I'm sure you're having these same conversations. And I'm sure as listeners that you're having uh, questions as well for yourself. So it's been our delight to be able to provide these things. And um, we're thankful to Julie for just putting this in one spot. Probably my favorite thing about the interview with Dr. Collins, even though he's an amazing, amazing person, and if you don't know anything about him, you should go and check out his, uh, you know, just a little bit of background information on him because he's not only uh, a devout and dedicated Christian, he's also one of the greatest scientists in the world. And so he is, uh, you know, the director of the National Institutes of Health. He is uh, unbelievably important as we are trying to respond to and combat uh, COVID-19. And uh, in this interview, he comes across, though, like this combination between your grandfather and your favorite teacher, because he makes mm-hmm. everything, even these ridiculously complicated things, he makes them so understandable. And he debunks a bunch of this uh, crazy conspiratorial nonsense that's out there uh, circulating around information about the vaccines. And so if you have questions about that, it's uh, it's linked to on our website. Julie did a great job of writing all of this up, and you can, you can get all of that at ERLC.com. And though those are just the articles that we've highlighted, I mean, we're talking to your kids about presidents and politicians for President's Day. We're talking about superheroes, talking about combat and COVID-19, talking about dating apps. So we have something for everyone on our site this week, it seems like. And uh, we would encourage you to check that out. These resources we put out there are in order to educate you and equip you to think biblically about all of these pressing issues of our day. So go to ERLC.com. And Josh and Megan and Brent from somewhere out there, that is your look at what's happening on our site. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And this is probably a good time to tell our listeners because of the snow and because of some special situations, uh, this episode is being recorded all out of order. So if you you know, see Brent gone, Megan pop in, everything's going according to plan, which is to say there's hardly a plan at all. Exactly, which brings up my favorite phrase that my fellow podcast crew is annoyed with, and it's it's a pandemic. What can you do? You get snowstorms thrown your way, and you have to record things out of turn, and our audio engineer in the third wall, third dimension, whatever it's called, fourth, it's fourth dimension. It's the fourth wall. The fourth wall. He just makes it sound like we actually know what we're doing. That's that's right. So big shout out to Gary. And now we'll do this artificial segue to Brent to tell us about the culture section. All right. So we begin this week with weather. In fact, we start with a news story from, I, I don't think we've used this news outlet before. I, I don't know how we've been able to go for almost a year without citing the weather channel. I mean, it's like, a, it's like an institution. Like, how, how have we not done that? Well, anyways... The Weather Channel reports on this week's crazy weather that has affected millions upon millions of Americans. So let's start with their reporting Uh, from their story. Back-to-back winter storms are making their way across the U.S. this week and have claimed dozens of lives in at least eight states 
as people succumbed to carbon monoxide poisoning, died in car crashes, slipped on dangerous ice, and fell victim to other hazards of this extremely dangerous weather. In all, at least 30 people have died in weather-related incidents this week. The deaths are just one part of the disaster that's unfolding in several states, especially Texas, where millions of residents faced another night without power or water. How crazy has the weather been for the two of you, Lindsay and Josh? So as I mentioned at the top of the show, for us, like we have um, fortunate, we've been very fortunate that we have not lost power. We have several friends that are here. We went night sledding last night after we put our kids to bed because our house is on this hill. And so we were able to just go out front while my kids are asleep and uh, with a bunch of friends, just night sled in our neighborhood and try not to wake people up. Although our, our neighbor did make a guest appearance and it was really awesome. So that's been really fantastic. It is devastating to hear from some of our friends, especially those in Texas who have not fared nearly as well. Uh, many have been without power. Some are having to boil water. One of my my friends, uh, it was like 30 degrees inside of his house. And so that's obviously devastating. And, and certainly uh, for the families, for those who have lost loved ones as a result of what is supposed to be a, you know, winter weather is where you think about sledding, building snowmen, having fun with your kids, uh, to, to know that at least 30 people have lost their lives. Like, yeah, that's devastating. Yeah, it is so tragic. I just cannot imagine uh, living through that. Hopefully our audio engineers... <laughs> Uh, this is the sound of what snow days are like at my house. Never have I been more thankful for uh, it taking a village to raise a family because my mom usually comes over and helps, but she is not here. So uh, they've been, uh, it's been a little bananas over here. Um, You mentioned slipping on the ice, which is not something to laugh at for people who have been seriously injured. But when I lived in Michigan through treacherous winters, I was proud that I only slipped on the ice one time. For what it's worth, I, I love the fact that we officially now have a fourth host of the show. That's exactly right. I, I mean, mean, if Megan, if Megan is not going to be able to chime in, yeah, if Megan's not going to be able to chime in, we need to fill that spot. Well, I'll just add that to Lindsay's talking about her travails of, of living in the snow laden north. Uh, I did fall down the snowy hill this morning just trying to take out the trash. So that was a that was a highlight of the morning. Well, the the Leatherwood kids have have certainly been able to to get out uh, a few times this this week and enjoy the weather. But uh, as we've all said, our, our thoughts and prayers are with folks in Texas. So let's let's actually uh, situate for a moment on what is going on there because things have been downright scary. NBC News reports that large parts of Texas woke up on Thursday to another day of a power crisis amid extreme winter weather. Issues with water systems added to the misery for much of the state's population. Scores of Texans were under notice to boil tap water before drinking it after days of record low temperatures, damaged infrastructure, caused blackouts, and froze water pipes. The winter weather has caused blackouts in Texas that have affected 1.8 million customers. Without power or heat, some Texans posted videos on social media of them burning old furniture to stay warm. Others shared images of flooding caused by burst pipes and collapsed ceilings. So this has caused a lot of finger pointing from Texas politicians at both the state and federal level. And I thought it was interesting just like in the midst of this crisis to see that clearly politics is uh, affecting uh, the way that some folks are are treating this. So just a a few of the quotes. Governor Abbott of Texas, he said this, 
This shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. Our wind and solar got shut down, and they were collectively more than 10% of our power grid, and that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power on a statewide basis. It just shows that fossil fuel is necessary. Meanwhile, U.S. Representative Dan Crenshaw, also a Republican, stated this, This is what happens when you force the grid to rely in part on wind as a power source. When weather conditions get bad as they did this week, intermittent renewable energy like wind isn't there when you need it. And on the other side of the aisle, former Congressman Beto O'Rourke said this, The energy capital of North America cannot provide enough energy to warm and power people's homes. We are nearing a failed state in Texas. So... I thought this was interesting, again, because clearly there's there's political commentary that's coloring this crisis, and there was a helpful kind of rundown in uh, the news outlet, The Dispatch, uh, that I thought might be helpful for our audience just to kind of understand maybe some of what's going on. Let's parse through some of these political comments. So this is what they wrote. According to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, which manages 90% of the state's electricity. In 2020, wind provided 22.8% of energy use in Texas, with natural gas providing over 45%, coal providing 17.9%, and nuclear providing 10.9%. Quote, the wind turbines are not to blame solely, says Bruce Bullock, director of the McGuire Energy Institute at Southern Methodist University. And that's what he told the dispatch. To continue, he said, a quote, about half of them did ice up and weren't able to be in use, but we don't plan on a lot of wind energy in the winter down here because the wind just doesn't blow that much. It was a contributor to the problem, but a relatively minor contributor. Because such low temperatures are so rare in the Lone Star State, power companies have, for the most part, opted not to invest in winterizing facilities, ensuring they can continue to operate in times like these. So needless to say, there is a lot more to come from elected officials in Texas as they try and both figure out exactly what happened here uh, and hopefully ways to prevent it. I'm just hopeful that they will be able to do this in a way that kind of forges some consensus and some real policy solutions. And at the same time, doesn't go down the the frankly the the tube uh, that our politics so often does today, uh, where finger pointing becomes actually the point and not not solutions for citizens that are in need. Yeah, honestly, Brandon, it's really exhausting to see everything devolve into politics because when we're facing a national emergency or like a severe weather crisis like this, it's not really the time for finger pointing. I'm no kind of meteorologist or, you know, severe weather expert or anything like that. But we're talking about Texas, a place where, you know, what's happening right now doesn't happen there. I have living, being from Eastern North Carolina, I have lived through a 500-year flood. And the, the truth is that you don't plan for 500-year floods because they only happen once every 500 years. Uh, when something like this happens, this is a time for people to band together. And honestly, the most heartening thing to me has been the response of churches and Christians and pastors who have worked so hard to ensure that their facilities are open when they have power, that they're able to serve as warming centers, that they are providing food. I mean, seeing people band together is really excellent. Seeing this kind of finger-pointing and uh, trying 
trying to use this as a political weapon to browbeat other people. That has been incredibly disheartening. So, you know, I'll just give three cheers for people doing good work in service to their neighbors. The, the most important quip I thought I heard from all of this, uh, apart from that, was just, look, I'm all about self-sufficiency. That's wonderful. Utilities are not commodities. Okay, these things that people rely on to keep their families warm, to keep their families fed, those things are not things that we should look on anyone with scorn for not having some unbelievable kind of preparedness for moments like these. So true. And I think of essential workers and and the things that they're going through to be able to make it in order to serve people well. Uh, I have one friend who works at the hospital and she's staying in a hotel in the Dallas-Fort Worth area near the hospital to be able to serve people. So I just cannot imagine having small kids and living through this or having serious health issues, being elderly. It just, I I see the pictures of the ice hanging from the ceiling fans and it's just, oh my word. And then pipes bursting. So I just, we just need to be praying that the Lord would um, bring a resolution to this quickly and would spare people continued devastation. I just, you know what? 2021 obviously did not learn from 2020. <laughs> because it is not shaping up to uh, to be any better. Yeah, as our colleague uh, Travis Wusso frequently says, I want off this ride. Lindsay, you're absolutely right, because in so many ways, it feels like we are uh, living in the 14th month of 2020. But there actually has been some good news. So our listeners will remember the last few weeks, we have highlighted the incredible downturn in positive COVID cases across the country. And the great news is it's continuing this week. So Axios is reporting this week, the U.S. averaged roughly 82,000 new cases per day over the past week, which is a 24% drop from the week before. Cases have been falling at about that pace now for really the last four or five weeks. New cases declined in 44 states. This is the first time since early November that the U.S. has averaged fewer than 100,000 cases per day. This is, as they write in the story, quote, unambiguously good news for America. And that is truly something to celebrate. And if it just means we are a, a week closer to this pandemic and just the fallout from it ending, man, uh, that is that is a true blessing. So what's behind the drop in cases? Well, The Atlantic takes a look and it reports what's behind the change. Americans' good behavior in the past month has tag-teamed with mostly warming weather across the Northern Hemisphere to slow the pandemic's growth At the same time, partial immunity and vaccines have reduced the number of viable bodies that would allow the coronavirus to thrive. But the full story is a bit more complex, and we'll link to this in in the show notes uh, because it, it goes into much greater detail about kind of the four main reasons. But I thought this was really good because much of this seems to be stuff that we as Americans can continue to do as a group on the macro level to control the spread of the pandemic and and ultimately defeat it. I'll just say that's the kind of good news that I'm here for. Every day when I wake up and it says uh, hospitalizations are falling, deaths are falling, COVID numbers are falling, that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking forward to. And I'm really looking forward to getting the vaccine. And it sounds like by the summer, we might be heading back towards normal. And that's what I'm holding out for. Well, and we need it to come to an end because... NBC News reported this, life expectancy in the U.S. fell by an entire year 
in the first half of 2020 as COVID-19 swept through the country. Health data published Thursday found a decline that has not been seen since World War II. From their report, racial minorities suffered the biggest impact from January through June of 2020, with Black Americans losing nearly three years and Hispanics losing nearly two years, according to preliminary estimates from the CDC. Provisional life expectancy in the first half of 2020 was at its lowest level since 2006, uh, the CDC found. So uh, we need to uh, continue to buckle down and uh, hopefully get that life expectancy number uh, back up to where it was pre-COVID. Brian, I just want to say you're Mr. Happy Fun Time guy this episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a uh, well, you can't blame it on Brent. Again, it's uh, what's happening in 2020 and 2021. And it's really going to be interesting, even as you're saying this, Brent, to look back in the history books and see what they write about these years, because they are just so unprecedented with all of this happening. I mean, maybe there is a precedent, like you've said in past episodes, the flu pandemic, but it's still different. And I hate to see this. I hate that minorities are suffering the biggest impact. I look forward to summertime as Olaf sings uh, when, because we watch a lot of Frozen these days to make it through, when hopefully we're getting more back to normal and we can hug one another again and we can smile again and we can be a in-person community again. Well, on that note, two larger-than-life figures passed away this week. Rush Limbaugh, the radio talk show host, and Christian music superstar, Carmen. You know you're a big deal when you could just go by your first name and people around the globe will know you. CNN reports Limbaugh, the conservative media icon who for decades used his perch as the king of talk radio to shape the politics of both the Republican Party and the nation, died on Wednesday after a battle with cancer. He was 70 years old. He was a pioneer of AM talk radio, and he hosted his show, The Rush Limbaugh Show, for 32 years. In doing so, he paved the way for a number of the uh, the talk radio giants that are, that are on the political right today. Certainly someone that uh, I grew up listening to, and um, it, it's, it's just a, a, an amazing career. Uh, that that Limbaugh had. And speaking of giants, we also lost this week Carmen Dominic Licciardello, a Christian music legend known simply by his first name. He was 65, Baptist Press reports. Carmen had been hospitalized in Las Vegas for complications after surgery to repair a uh, hernia, according to a press release posted by the musician's Facebook page. He first began performing as a drummer in his mother's band as a teenager, and he came to fame in the mid-1980s during the heyday of contemporary Christian music with the release of his hit song, The Champion. His 1993 record, Addicted to Jesus, was named Christian Album of the Year, and his other hits included Satan, Bite the Dust, Revival in the Land, and A Witch's Invitation. He also put together elaborate stage shows, often for free, for his millions of fans across the globe. So, uh, y'all, we we clearly lost two two giants this week. These are big losses. And my husband is a huge CCM fan, so he was a fan of Carmen. I also saw somebody post that um, they went to his concerts, and he would just share scripture. He would just 
talk about scripture in between his songs, used it as a great ministry. So uh, it's just really sad um, to see the passing of these these two men who paved the way for so much in their different areas. Yeah, it was just a, I mean, blast from the past for me. And I'm in all of my childhood feels remembering both listening to uh, copious amounts of conservative talk radio, of which Rush Limbaugh was the reigning king. Uh, you know, growing up with my dad riding around in his truck and listening to Rush for hours at a time. At the same time, uh, growing up as a kid in evangelicalism, Carmen was like this huge name. And not only, you know, he has this song, The Champion, which was so unbelievably popular, but uh, also, I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a movie, and I think the title of the movie was Carmen the Champion, but in which he was a boxer. And if you've never seen that, this is a good time to go revisit it. But grateful for Carmen's life and for uh, his testimony, a witness to Jesus. It's a good word, Josh. All right, so uh, just a, uh, a quick uh, warning for parents. This next section may be uh, a little tense for for younger ears, so we'll... Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the fallout from the Ravi Zacharias scandal. So if you need to fast forward, go ahead and do that for the uh, next couple minutes. All right. So this week, the findings of an independent investigation into Ravi Zacharias and RZIM uh, was released. The biblical reporter out of North Carolina reports that four cell phones used by uh, the apologist Ravi Zacharias, whose ministry lasted approximately 50 years, provided the bulk of evidence that he had multiple relationships with women who were not his wife. That evidence includes well over 200 selfie-style photographs of women, many of them explicit, as well as conversations over email, the report termed as amorous. As the silent partner of two Atlanta-area massage parlors, Zacharias made unwanted advances and pressured therapists towards inappropriate touching. In a statement, the RZIM board called the report's findings horrendous. So we had, you, you may remember, we had a preliminary report that came out back before the holidays that, that suggested uh, there was much more to come. Uh, that uh, these allegations were very serious, and unfortunately, they were real. I mean, from my own personal perspective, uh, reading what was contained in the uh, Christianity Today uh, story about this, this was absolutely horrifying. Um, there's no doubt about that. And uh, Ravi Zacharias, I mean, we just got through talking about giants in the field of apologetics and international Christian ministry, Ravi Zacharias was that. And to, to see how he was doing that while maintaining this double life of sexual predation on women is, uh, the only word that comes is horrifying. Yeah, describing it as the board did as horrendous is the understatement of the year. It it he was a genuine predator in the name of Jesus and it is just disgusting and um evil, satanic. I appreciated that Dr. Moore wrote an article and um in his newsletter encouraging those who came to Christ under uh Ravi's ministry and just saying, you know, he he will let you down. Or as Paul mentioned, some preach the gospel out of selfish ambition. 
he will let you down. He has been a false prophet, but the gospel is true and Christ is true. And that's who you're standing up under is the Lord of the gospel. And so I, um, I appreciate that encouragement because this has got to be devastating for so many people who were encouraged by his ministry and built up by his ministry. And I just feel sad for the initial lady who came forward who wasn't believed by so many. I don't know. I just pray that the Lord, the light of Christ, the darkness would not overcome it, which I thank you. I, I'm I'm thankful for that promise. Yeah, we've talked many times about the fact that our culture and specifically our evangelical culture and even all the way at home in the Southern Baptist Convention is facing a reckoning when it comes to dealing with sexual abuse. And this is horrendous. It is devastating. It is just chilling to the core uh, to think about the magnitude of evil that was perpetrated by somebody who everyone on all of us looked at as a hero. Ravi Zacharias was critical for me in one of the darkest periods of my life. His ministry helped me hold fast to Jesus in a time when I was gripped with doubt and unbelief. And this has been just devastating to me personally. And honestly, my heart breaks for the women who were victimized my heart breaks for all of those Christians who feel like they were deceived and lied to and whose own faith is shaken as a result of this. Dr. Moore's uh, articles are on his website. You can read those there. I wrote about it on my website. David French wrote a great article on this topic for The Dispatch, and there is much more to come in terms of reflecting on this because, God willing, we are facing a reckoning right now, but hopefully it's a reckoning that leads to change where 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we're not dealing with the fallout of seeing unaccountable, I'll just say unaccountable men preying upon people, taking advantage of them, and perpetrating evil in the name of Christ. Those are good words. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's end our culture section on a little bit of a, of a lighter note. So uh, thankfully, with the, the passing of the NFL and uh, them moving off the stage last week, we can actually start looking forward to one of the best times of the year if you are a sports fan. So college basketball is starting. The conference tournaments are, are getting ready to start up. And baseball. Baseball is back, y'all. So snow may be on the ground, but the crack of the bat is officially here this week. That's right. This is a good time of the year that's, that's beginning now. Is this that sport where the stick men have the ball thrown at them and then they run to the pillows? <laughs> that video is still so funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah, something like that. But no, it's look, I'm I always get excited uh when when baseball's here. And I, I know that our loyal listener, Dean and Sarah down in Tallahassee, this this is like his living his best life now when when uh when bats are hitting balls. And so yeah, I, I agree with him. You got anything on baseball, Josh? Look, I'm excited about being able to see the grass again and go outside. And like some of my best memories uh, here have been from taking my son to uh, watch the Nashville Sounds. So good times there. And also, uh, you know, baseball is a huge staple uh, where I'm from and where I grew up. And so it's, you know, it's America's pastime. So of course I'm excited. There you go. See, that's a good note to end on after, after some heavy news. Uh, this week in the culture section. So with that, Lindsay and Josh, that's your look at this week in culture.
So now we're about to talk to Dr. Carl Truman. Dr. Truman has a PhD from the University of Aberdeen. He is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's an esteemed church historian, and he is the author of a really important new book. And we are really excited to talk with Dr. Truman about the book today. Dr. Truman, thank you so much for joining us today. As we're getting started, before we jump into talking about the book, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, Obviously, from my accent, you can tell that I'm not from stateside. I was born and brought up in England, moved here in 2001 to teach at a seminary, and since 2018, I've been teaching at Grove City College in beautiful western Pennsylvania, teaching humanities to undergraduates, which is something I, I really enjoy. Well, we are so thankful that you've joined us here in America. I have some fond memories about England because my dad used to live in Chorleywood, uh, oh. about 30 minutes outside of London. So, gotcha. Yeah, so I would spend some summers there and have ice lollies and tea and biscuits, and oh, I loved it. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. You have recently released an important book that... I just had um, a baby, so I'm not able to read as much as I want, but this is on my list, and I cannot wait to read it. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. So its message is incredibly timely and so important for Christians. So could you tell us why you wrote it and what the message is that you want your readers to hear? Sure. It's uh, the... the the, the origins of the book actually lie in uh, informal conversations with Rod Dreher, the conservative journalist, and Justin Taylor, the editor at Crossway, who wanted me to write a book introducing the thought of the psychological sociologist Philip Reef to a popular audience. And as I was working on that, I... I decided that a more interesting book and a more important book would be to use some of Reef's ideas to address some of the big questions that we face in society today. And ultimately, the book became an attempt to, to really address two things. One, I wanted to try to help people understand why the sexual revolution, uh, of which we are all part and which we're all witnessing at the moment, appears to be happening so fast. Why have we moved so quickly from gay marriage to transgenderism, for example? And I wanted to also look at the the question uh, relating to the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. When you think about that statement and when you realize that that statement now makes plausible sense, not just to deconstructionists in Ivy League postgraduate seminars, but to the ordinary man or woman in the street, what social conditions, what ideas already have to be in place for transgenderism to have carried all before it? So it's really those three things. It was a conversation with Rodrea and Justin. It was a desire to get at the speed of the sexual revolution. And it was an attempt to answer that question. Uh, why, uh, why is that statement I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, now something that is not just commonly believed, but the denial of which is enough to render you beyond the political pale. You discuss in your opening chapter of your book that the sexual revolution has a broader historical context, which you kind of just talked about, isn't just a revolution chiefly about sex and sexuality, and you say, quote, a revolution in how the self is understood. Can you tell us a little bit about why the contemporary misunderstanding of selfhood is so dangerous? Sure. One of the reasons that uh, transgenderism, for example, has has gripped the public imagination so quickly is that it does rest on this broader change in the understanding of selfhood and 
perhaps I should back up a little and talk about what do I mean by the self? Well, there's a common sense way of understanding selfhood where I understand that I'm not you and you understand you're not me. There's there's a way we use self to talk about our, our basic self-consciousness as individuals. In the book, I'm thinking about selfhood, though, in terms of what makes us tick? Where do I ground my identity? What is it that makes me who I am? Why do I think that I am who I am? It's those kind of questions. And the modern self, uh, in a break really from from the past, uh, has decided that the inner sphere, the inner psychological space, is that which determines who we are. It's not, if you like, the the status we're born into, into society. It's not the family networks we have. First and foremost, our identity is what we feel or who we feel we are inside. And I think that's very dangerous because it makes selfhood incredibly subjective. And also at the bottom bottom line is it's not actually true. It's predicated on Rousseau's notion that the human beings are born free, that we are born with a pristine identity, but everywhere we're in change, some kind of identity is imposed upon us. That's self-evidently not the case. I'm born, we were all born incredibly dependent upon others. One of you said you, you, you've had a baby recently. Well, your baby is incredibly dependent on you. If you leave your baby outside, particularly in the winter, uh, the baby won't last more than more than 24 hours. Human beings are very dependent, and our identity really is something we need to draw from the world around us. But we've decided that it's something we can invent for ourselves, and that makes human identity incredibly plastic, incredibly unstable, incredibly subjective, and leads to the situation that we now find ourselves in when you know, not all plastic identities can be considered uh, uh, legitimate. Somebody has to step in and decide which identities are legitimate and which are not, and that tends to be the government, and that tends to lead to a kind of authoritarianism. So we have a strange situation where radically libertarian identities uh, feed ultimately into a rather authoritarian view of the role of government. That is helpful, and it uh, it answers some of what I've been reading in David Brooks's book, The Second Mountain. He talks about this false individualism, how we're dependent on one another. So um, that is helpful. And related to that, we want to ask about this term that might be new to some of our listeners, mind-body dualism. So as Christians, we reject the idea that human beings are merely souls trapped inside of a body, like you said, and that that defines who we are. Can you help our audience think about why our understanding of the human person is important and how this dualism shows up in contemporary debates about sexuality and identity. You discuss this a little bit, but would you flesh it out a little bit more for us? Bottom line is bodies are very important to who we are, and there's a tendency in modern thought to think of my body not so much as an integral part of me, but as an instrument to achieving my identity. And that has all kinds of ramifications. Uh, If you think about that statement, uh, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. If you had gone to your doctor, say, 100 years ago with that statement, your doctor's immediate reaction would have been, okay, 
there's a problem with your mind. We need to bring your mind into line with your body. Today, if you go to your doctor and say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, your doctor is going to respond, okay, there's a problem with your body. We need to bring your, uh, your, your body into line with your mind. And in that shift, we see this, this shift in, in terms of identity and selfhood to that, that inner space. The problem with that, I think, bottom line is uh, it's essentially – uh, a, a detachment of identity from anything social and connected whatsoever. Uh, you are exactly who you feel or who you desire to be. Think of what it would do, for example, to parental relations where somebody uh, ha has a daughter and at age 15, the daughter decides they're actually a boy. Suddenly they have a son and not a daughter. What does that do to the history of the family? What does that do to the identity of the family? And from a Christian perspective, one would have to say that, that God does not make mistakes like that, that human beings are created as em embodied creatures. That's very clear in Genesis 1 and 2, that embodiment and the complementarity of the male and female body uh, is important. And so statements such as, I'm born in the wrong body, simply very, very problematic because they drive a wedge between our embodiment and, and who we really are. And as I say, the, the social implications of that are potentially very, very catastrophic. So in light of what we've discussed and what you've just said, um, the broader discussion of these things in your book, what should Christians do? What's the appropriate response in terms of discipleship or social activism and for the church moving forward? That's a, a good question and a big question. I think there are a number of things that need to be done. One, uh, Christians, certainly pastors, need to make sure that they're teaching the whole counsel of God. That's a perennial for pastors, of course, but they should not shirk these particular issues. They're going to have to address issues of sexuality and gender from the pulpit, not in every sermon, uh, but they're going to have to be addressed because these are the questions that are pressing in on their congregants from the world around them. Secondly, I think Christians, and particularly Protestant Christians, need to start drawing upon the, the very rich Christian tradition of natural law, and particularly as that manifests itself in what Catholics call the theology of the body, connected to much of the, the philosophical work that John Paul II did, actually. But a, a proper understanding of how the body is not instrumental to our identity, but is part of our identity, that's going to be very uh, important. I think that also helps what I would call the catechizing of people in the Christian church. There's a lot of people who understand what the Bible says about sexuality and about uh, uh, sex and gender, uh, but don't necessarily understand why. And there's, there's always that nagging feeling that, has God said this because he doesn't want people to be happy? I think when you come to understand that, that nature itself has a kind of moral structure, that helps us see that the Bible not only speaks truth, but speaks truth that makes sense as well. And finally, I think it is going to get tough for the church in its role in society because the very things we hold dear, uh, the nature of biblical human personhood, for example, are precisely the things that are being directly challenged now. And that's going to push us to the margins of, of society. It's appropriate to lament that. It's appropriate to be depressed about that for a time. But I think long term, we have to look at that as an opportunity. We have to see that, okay, this is where we're being put. These are the times in which we live. How do we respond? And I think we respond by 
emphasizing the church as a loving, supportive community. One of the striking things about this world of expressive individualism that I describe in the book is communities are very volatile. Communities can be very thin. Traditional communities are falling apart, and yet people still want to belong. The church, I think, by being a strong and vibrant community, can be an attractive haven for the people who are, if you like, the victims of the modern culture of the psychological self and of expressive individualism. Dr. Sherman, I really like how you point out, and, and just in that last answer, talking about the future, that the church is uh, going to be at the center of our response as Christians. And uh, I know Dr. Moore, who leads our organization, he often talks about the church being a place for what he calls the refugees of the sexual revolution, those people who realize that the sexual revolution cannot keep its promises and that it's ultimately going to uh, you know, lead them down a path that they that they wish they had not gone. And so we are just so grateful for you taking the time to talk to us today. We want to commend your book strongly to our listeners. We think that it is uh, it is an important work that the church really needs to uh, consider. Because one of the things that we're talking about right now in looking at the advance of the sexual revolution is, yes, it exposes a lack of discipleship and moral formation among Christians, but it also creates an opportunity for us to demonstrate how the Christian gospel and the Christian understanding of, of the human person is distinct uh, from what is on offer from the world. And so uh, it's a really important book, and we are really grateful for your time today. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure to be with you. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you about the things that we've been talking about with one another. You're hanging out in The Lunchroom with Lindsay, Josh, and Megan. And Lindsay, you're up first. So tell us what's on your mind. Well, sticking with the COVID-19 theme, I have been watching the Today Show. So my mom comes over in the morning when it's not a snowstorm and helps with the two children, which is such a blessing. Have I mentioned that? If I haven't, I think I did earlier. It is. And absence makes the heart grow fonder. So anyway, we've been watching the Today Show. They have compiled this site called Plan Your Vaccine. So it helps you figure out all the stuff about the vaccine happening in your state, which in our particular state, um, they've done a good job. We've got friends that are involved in that. Shout out to them. But it has still been confusing with all the different counties and the different times to go and all of that. So Plan Your Vaccine, we'll have the website in the... um, in the show notes, is really helpful for what's going on when your group should be able to come in to get the vaccine and sign up and all of that jazz. So plan your vaccine. We've got it in the show notes. Very helpful. Can I just say that I'm least surprised that this is Lindsay's lunchroom? This is very on brand, Lindsay. Just want to give you a shout out. Well, listen, I'm just trying to be consistent. and But also my mom is in the 65 and older group. She wouldn't mind me telling you that. But Every day, she's like, I got to get my vaccine. When can I get my vaccine? Somebody's got to help me find out when I can get my vaccine. So I'm thankful for this plan your vaccine site so she can figure that out. So Megan, what you got going on here in your guest lunchroom appearance? Okay, well, today to the lunchroom, Lindsay, I'm going to bring something that I know that we would really talk about in the lunchroom if we were together. And it's this conversation that's going on all over social media, literally everywhere you look about Gen Z versus millennials and where Gen Z is basically just trying to tell millennials what to do and what not to do anymore. And they've created all these rules, these like made up rules, I feel like, where we millennials need to stop wearing skinny jeans. We need Mm, to stop using the the cry laughing emoji. You're not supposed to use that anymore. And we have to change our hair part. What do you think about that, Lindsay? Marsha Brady. To the middle. No. Yeah. Yes. 
while all our listeners, we may have some Gen Zers, um, I just need you to know this is just a fun little spat, but still, I feel very attacked. <laughs> Side part for life, as one of our coworkers said, skinny jeans for life. Mom jeans, I mean, what? When did what? Huh? It's just when did mom it's jeans become cool? It's hilarious because it's all just like they're bringing back what we've already done, like in yes. middle and elementary school, and they're telling us to do it again. And we're like, no, yes. we're, we're older, we're wiser, we've moved beyond that. Exactly. We part our hair on yeah. the side now. I think is what right. Well, as one person said, when you um, have a job and aren't on your parents' cell phone plan anymore, then you can tell me what to do. <laughs> just kidding. I know I'm just generalizing. We love you, Gen Z. <laughs> We do love Gen Z, but there's some really funny articles, and uh, there's this BuzzFeed article we've all been watching about, um, it's like 38 ways, I think, and where Gen Z is telling millennials things to stop doing. We'll link in the show notes. It's pretty fun. I got to tell you, so we have pitched the idea uh, multiple times of having just the Girl Power ERLC podcast where we bring the women on for one whole episode and let them do all of the hosting and talking. And you are just pushing me closer to making that a reality. Uh, for my lunchroom this week, sticking on the theme of Girl Power, there was an excellent, excellent article that was written at For the Church this week by Allison Todd titled... Less about the fence, more about the playground, female ambition, and complementarian culture. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, uh, here's a brief rundown, but the article is linked and you should definitely uh, take a look at it. Basically, in, in the SBC and in our conservative part of evangelical culture, we are what is known as complementarians. It means that we believe that men and women are equal in terms of their essence, they're equal in dignity, they're equal in value, but that they're distinct, that we recognize a God-intended uh, distinction between the, His design for men and women. And that means that men and women are, among other things, they're supposed to function differently in the church and in the home. Like God has created specific uh, patterns for men and women to fall into. And in this article, Allison talks about one of the things that I've heard from so many women in evangelicalism, which is the fact that so often uh, people focus on, on what she calls the fence instead of the playground. They focus on the rules or the prohibitions uh, for particular uh, genders, particularly for female, where, where uh, women are told, hey, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to serve in this way. Uh, and instead of elevating women and encouraging them to serve in all the ways that God has designed and laid out for them to serve, uh, they're constantly rebuked and told uh, what they can't be doing. And so this article actually lays out that problem and points towards some of the solutions in a really effective way. And so I, if, if that is a topic of conversation that is interesting to you or something you've encountered, this would be a great resource for you to look into. Yeah, I've seen that floating around on the internet with some friends who are sharing it on Twitter, etc. So I'll have to check that out. Allison has helped us out at some events before. I do remember um, encountering her and thankful for her voice on this. Also thankful for the guys at the ERLC. Just wanted to give them a shout out for elevating our voices who encourage us to step into different giftings to serve where we're able. So um, just a little tiny shout out there for them. Well, I'll say on behalf of the men on our staff, we really appreciate that. And we are privileged to work with some unbelievably talented women and grateful for the way that God uses all of you in service to his kingdom. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for hanging with us in this uh, unusual episode, but we really enjoyed not just walking through the week, but that interview with Dr. Truman, uh, such an important book and a fun conversation for us to be able to have with him. If you like the podcast, please help us spread the word by sharing this episode on social media or going into your podcast app and 
leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Megan and Lindsay and Brent and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week for more content.